0: Hey Brett here. We're taking a quick break for the Thanksgiving holiday here in the United States, so we're rebroadcasting episode number 448, Your Son Isn't Lazy. It was originally broadcasted October 2018. It's one of our most downloaded episodes ever. It's with a child psychologist by the name of Adam Price and it's a great podcast. If you have sons, boys who look like they're disengaged, unmotivated about school, about life, a lot of great insights here and field tested insights on how to help and reach out to those boys. So check it out. I hope you enjoy it. And for those United States, hope you have a happy Thanksgiving. We'll see you on Monday. Brett McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. Do you have a teenage boy who struggles in school, or do you have a younger son who you can imagine struggling in school as he gets older? He may otherwise be a capable young man, but seems apathetic and unmotivated to the point you think he's not excelling simply because he's lazy. My guest today says that's the wrong conclusion to draw and one that leads to the wrong parenting approach to addressing it. His name is Adam Price, and he's the child psychologist and the author of the book, He's Not Lazy, Empowering Your Son to Believe in Himself. Today on the show, Dr. Price argues that the real reason many young men are unmotivated is not that they don't care about succeeding, but that they feel too much pressure to do so and are scared of failing. We discuss why nagging and overparenting simply exacerbates the issue and how stepping back and giving boys more autonomy can help them become more self-directed and find their footing. After the show's over, check out the show notes at aom.is slash lazy. Dr. Adam Price, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. So you're a clinical psychologist who specializes in children and teenagers, and because of your work, you've encountered a lot of high school boys who, you know, they don't have serious mental ish mental issues. There not no severe depression, you know, no severe learning disabilities yet. They just appear apathetic towards school and life. So, can you, can you, can you kind of give us a composite description of this type of boy who, no big, you know, depressive issues, but they just are unmotivated.
1: Yeah, and Brad, I think it's good that you're making that distinction because you know depression looks different. Depression certainly has. Uh, a feeling of apathy and lack of interest in things. We have a big word for it in psychiatry, which is anhedonia, which means losing interest. But that's different than just not having motivation for specific things. And you know, I, I would, though, include ADHD in this. We don't think about that as a learning disability, but but I think it, it could be considered that. And so actually some of my interest in this area of motivation to teenage boys came from working with and evaluating a lot, of, a lot of boys with ADHD. So my thoughts, my thinking in the book is for, for parents of boys who do and don't have ADHD, but I would just throw that in there. And so what I see over and over again are boys who on the outside look like they're impervious to academic pressure they really look like they don't care. They make time for video games. They may make time for sports or their friends. But when it comes to school, they seem to find a way of flying under the radar of serious trouble. Yet their parents are really worried about them. They're thinking about their future. And what I've what I've learned over time is that underneath, these boys really are responding to a pressure they feel they can't handle. And so in the face of this pressure, What they do, rather than face the competition, is they decide to opt out altogether. And they say things like, school really is important. I'm not going to be one of those nerds who studies all the time. I'm going to do fine. There's a lot of avoidance and denial that you see. The denial is everything's fine. It's going to work out. Avoidance seems to be the go-to defense for teenage boys, which is, I just won't think about it. I just won't deal with it. I'll do something that's more satisfying and pleasurable to me.
0: Right. So I was going to say, so your, your book, He's Not Lazy, right? Because like I think when most parents see a kid who doesn't really apply themselves at school and they're just playing videos and games all the time, they think, well, he, he's such a bright kid. If he weren't so lazy, if he just applied himself, he'd be a success. But it's not laziness. It's avoidance. It's not
1: laziness. It is, you know, but what's underneath the, the avoidance is fear right? So, you know, I hear a lot from parents, he's not working up to his potential. And by the way, this is true for girls too, but but he's not working up to his potential. And so what, what parents are seeing is that is that a young man may be bright, as you said, but there's two things. The first thing is that academic achievement and achievement in general is not based just upon talent, right? You know, it's based upon perseverance. It's based upon maturity. It's based upon organizational skills. There are a lot of things that go into doing well in school. So just because someone's bright doesn't mean that they can nail every subject. But the other thing is, you know, I, I fear that all this talk about potential is really a wolf in sheep's clothing because I, I think even though it sounds like it's all about growth and development, what parents are really saying is if my son were at the top of his class, if he worked if he worked as hard as he could all the time, he'd be at the top of his class and that just isn't the case, you know. When I was when I was a boy, uh, my mom came home from a parent-teacher conference in fourth grade, and she said to me, "Your, your teacher said two things about you. One is you're not paying attention enough in school. You're, you're you're talking too much to your neighbors, which really is a 1970s way of diagnosing ADHD." But but then my mom said, "The teacher said you're not working up to your potential." And I really I thought she was saying I wasn't smart enough, you know. And, and I've given this a lot of thought because I think well you know, listeners, have you achieved your t- potential today? Have I achieved my potential? I hope not. I hope it's something we're always working towards. So parents talk about laziness.
0: Yeah. I mean, so have you, you've been doing this for you know 20 plus years. Have you seen an increase of young men disengaging from school because of this pressure?
1: I have. I think that we are seeing it in many, many different ways, you know, and part of the reason I wrote the book about boys is that boys often handle stress differently than girls. You know, bro- girls have this pressure to be perfect and to do everything without breaking a sweat, by being beautiful, but also by meeting everybody's expectations. Boys, as I as I kind of described, they experience the stress by shutting down more often. And we have seen a rise in anxiety among teenagers, depression among teenagers, you know, a lot of behavioral problems. And a lot of people speculate what that's about. You know, I think a lot of it has to, I mean, the world is, you know, there's, there's forces out there that kids are worried about in terms of their future, like global warming. I mean, kids are thinking about this stuff, but also college has become a whole different ball game than certainly when I went to college. There's, it's more competitive, resources are are tighter, you know, it's much more expensive. So a lot of people who might have been able to afford it, you know, or, or or kids could take out loans and be able to pay them back. It's just not accessible for a lot of families. So I think that there is a lot more fear out there. Kids are under more pressure.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think in the book you describe what life was like, you know, before this intense pressure to go to college and to be the best in college and get scholarships. I mean, it seemed like there were more options for young men right? You could go to college or, you know, you go learn a trade or you go do this. So there was, I don't know, it wasn't that, the pressure wasn't so acute as it is today.
1: I can tell you, I went to an Ivy League college and if I applied today with the same, you know, SAT scores and grades, they would laugh me off the campus. And a lot of, a lot of my peers say that as well. It just is, it is different. You know, there's economic shifts you know, even the way the internet has changed our economy and changed the type of jobs people can get, you know, all these things I think are factors, more temporary jobs. You know, I think this is all part of what kids are facing, either directly or indirectly. And so the the, the you know the future just doesn't feel as bright or wide open.
0: And I, I thought it was an interesting comment you made. You know, today we call boys who are unmotivated in school lazy, but there was a time when we called them, oh, they're just a late bloomer, Right. <laughs>
1: You know, I, I, yeah, I really appreciate you say that because I think what's happened is that is that yesterday's late bloomer has become today's underachiever, and the thing is that a late bloomer, they they still have time to catch up, but an underachiever, he's already behind. And boys do take longer to develop, and boys develop at different rates. And kids who have ADHD, they you know their development, and we're talking about a broad scope of development, but particularly you know, the the executive functions, the prefrontal cortex, the part of the brain that plans ahead and that does organization, you know, that's going through a whole reorganization for teenagers, for all teenagers. And if you have ADD, you're going to be even 20% behind, you know, what we consider normal development. So we really need space for boys to feel like they can be late bloomers because many of them are. Many of them, I've seen so many kids who I saw in high school and I get feedback as they go into college and even the workforce, they end up doing okay.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think I've read research where like basically like the adult, like their brain doesn't really settle, their adult brain doesn't settle in until like 25, 26.
1: Yeah, that's right. Yeah.
0: Right. And and you're and you're and you're expected at age 18 to like pretty much have your adult life planned out and ready.
1: Yeah. I think parents don't realize that I think we, we we forget how disorganized we were as as teenagers and kids we think we were you know more on top of it more focused and and you know I think what we're trying to do is I think because parents are afraid of of the future and because they're worried about it, you know they're trying to take full control of it by by offering tutoring and 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 even therapy and you know all sorts of services and and the problem is you know, we can't commandeer the future. And um, even though, you know, the, the natural course of development is to take your time to develop and, and to grow, we're trying to speed up the process. We're trying to raise kids who at 18 are ready to go out there and make their own decisions and, and, and be full functioning adults and reach their potential. And it's just not possible.
0: So uh, you related to related to this just a moment ago but let's kind of get into the details of it. What is going on in the body and the mind of a teenage boy that exacerbates that feeling of pressure that it, so that intense pressure where you're, the only option is to just give up.
1: You know I, I I there's a lot there in that question because obviously there's a lot going on in Adolescent development there's obviously puberty there's obviously all the changes that are going on in in a teenager's body as they mature sexually there's the effect of hormones on both boys and girls which can create a lot of moodiness and a lot of uh, a lot of uh you know ups and downs um, we know all that and 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 so what I would focus on in terms of the effect of that on academic achievement on motivation is that a lot of what happens for teenagers is that they have a, it's almost an identity crisis, Brett, although I'm not so sure crisis fits because it's really an opportunity. But you know, when, 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 when you're a child, you look at the world through your parents' eyes and, you know, they're the ruler of the realm and all is good in the kingdom. And kids tend to look at they tend to follow the same sports teams as their parents or, or, or the same political party if they're you know so inclined, whatever. But then as they become teenagers, they realize, well, you know, I got to differentiate here. I, 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 gotta, I want to and have to become my own person. And so what they do is they try on different identities. And some of those identities fit and some of those identities don't fit. And one day your teenager will come home and say, I'm a vegetarian. You know, I, I don't want to hurt animals, and sometimes that will stick, but often it doesn't because that they're going to then try on a different identity. What happens with underachievers, though, is that they're scared of doing well in school. Or the other thing for boys is that they don't get a lot of social status by doing well in school. Boys get social status by what they can do, how far they can throw a baseball, how far they can, uh, you know, run, how fast they can run on a football field. They don't get status for doing well in school, so that's not going to become their identity. So they'll tend to push that identity down and look for other identities to promote. That's the first part of it. The second part of, of, of development that I think is really important is ambivalence. Teenagers don't enter uh, adolescence full-fledged wanting to be adults and having their own dependence. They'll tell you that. They'll scream and yell when you give them a curfew. But there's a part of them that really wants to stay a child and be taken care of. And so you'll see them, parents will see them acting like babies at home, you know, expecting to be waited on, expected to be, you know, or wanting to be taken care of in that way, and then pushing back and saying, you know, no, I can make my own decisions on my own person. So, you know, I call adolescence the bridge of ambivalence. And so I think a lot of this gets acted out in, in academic achievement also. Because there are some kids who recognize that if they do well in school, it means that they are growing up, that they are going to do better. But then there's another thing that happens, which is that for the underachiever, I call it the, the, uh, the, uh, the fight for false autonomy. Because what they do is their parents are pressuring them. You got to do better in school. You got to do better in school. So they feel like I can exert my independence and my autonomy by making my own decisions and not do well in school. I can make that choice for myself. So they feel like they're being autonomous when really they're, you know, they're, they're closing off options for themselves. And then, then the more the parents push them, the more parents get a paradoxical response is it is that the kid then uses that as leverage to fight against the parent for their own independence. And it, it's no longer about their own conflict about doing well in school or worrying about it. It's about their conflict with their
0: parents. Right, so the pressure, the increased pressure, actually backfires. I think that's the typical response from parents: like, "Well, we're gonna, we're gonna lay down the law, we're gonna do these things," and then that just doesn't work because it's a power struggle, and then you're always gonna lose. It's a power struggle, and you know
1: that. Yeah, I don't know if you uh, have teenagers or you just remember being a teenager, but power struggle is like the uh, epitome of of being a teenager because it's a battle of will, and they're fighting for their autonomy, and they'll usually win because they don't have anything to lose, right? They don't care necessarily if they're disrespectful or swear or whatever, and you do, and you're not gonna, hopefully a parent won't lose it. So, you know, the way out of that is always to offer a teenager a choice. Sometimes one of the the choices is not something they wanna do. Like you can, you know, you can clean up your room and then go out with your friends, or you can not clean up your room and stay home. It's your choice. But I wanna go back to something that you brought up earlier that I think is really important, and that's this concept of laziness. Because I said briefly that underneath laziness is fear. Underneath this sense of apathy is really self doubt, really a question, as, as we were talking about before, about whether a young man feels like they can handle the pressure. And so calling a kid lazy only serves to alienate them more, to make them, you know, you're calling them a name and they just feel worse about themselves and then angrier at you. So it, that's something else that often backfires. And I don't really believe in laziness. I believe that there are things that get in the way, such as what we're what we're touching on today.
0: Yeah, I mean these kids sometimes oftentimes aren't lazy when they find something that interests them, right? They'll apply themselves heavily to sports, maybe video games or maybe some other hobby that they they enjoy music, could be anything and they're they're not lazy there.
1: That go, th- that goes back to your initial point about depression, right? They're They, they, there are certain things that they find pleasure in and that they're motivated for not in every, not in every kid. And, you know, it's also funny because I hear parents say a lot, you know, I want my, I want my teenager or even my child to find a passion. Uh, A neighbor of mine once came up to me and said, you know, should I push my daughter who was eight years old at swimming? And I said, I don't know, maybe if, you know, if she, if she wants to, but I wouldn't, I wouldn't, you know. Throw her into the pool. And he said, But don't I have a responsibility because she's talented? <laughs> and I thought, oh, that's that's not necessarily going to go in the right direction. Because kids don't always have a passion. You know, sometimes they don't develop it until they're older. The flip side of that though is I've also seen kids who have an incredible passion and have developed a business for themselves. One young man I worked with was failing out of school, but making all this money doing it, being a DJ. And he had a whole film production company. I I really wasn't, he needed to graduate from college, but I wasn't too worried about him being successful because a lot of the people that, you know, become superstars in certain fields, they started when they were young. So, you know, there's always a balance.
0: Yeah, I mean, I I think that's a good point of how parenting has changed. Because you mentioned the kid who, you know, in high school started the successful DJ company. I would say maybe 70 years ago, if that was the case, you know, and he dropped out of high school, the parents would be like, well, okay, that's fine as long as you're making money. Because I I, I remember reading, you know, read the biographies of these these people from the the early 20th century, late 19th century. And you have these like 14-year-old kids who they drop out of school and they go off on an adventure or do something. And the parents are like, oh, okay. I mean, I think there's like, you know, Jack London would like, you know, when he was a teenager, just leave. (laughs) And he would be gone for months and not tell anyone where he went. And then he'd come back and, oh, hey, Jack, how's it going? And (laughs) not a big deal. If that happened today, it would be pandemonium.
1: Yeah. My grandfather grew up in New York City, and when he was a boy in the Depression, he would—he lived in the Bronx—and he would tell his parents, "I'm going, to, I'm going out." And he would walk from the Bronx down to Manhattan, which is—that's where I'm sitting right, seated right now. But it's quite a walk. Walk around Central Park it would take all day, and, and then walk home. It was—it was—it was like, you know, eleven, twelve years old. Uh, that wouldn't happen today, but you know, back then. We didn't have, you didn't need a graduate degree to do everything. You know, there there are degrees now. I mean, a lot of boys are interested in sports, and so they go to college and they major in sports marketing or business business sports. You didn't need to used to do that maybe even ten years ago. So that's another way that kids feel pressure because you know the entry bar has been raised by all the requirements that are needed. Even in an MBA, you didn't need that to go into business. you just you know, so things, yeah, things are very different than then, no no doubt. The other thing though, is where where I also hear parents, talk a lot about achievement is with athletics and sports. And, you know, it's the, it's the same thing that applies to school. Well, he's such a gifted athlete. Why isn't he kicking the soccer ball, you know, practicing his, his shots on goal, you know, when he comes home from school or, or, or you know, practicing uh, layups. And so parents expect kids to apply the same level of maturity and achievement to sports that they sometimes do for school. Not every kid is able or willing to do that. And, you know, they're, they're also not necessarily headed for professional sports or even scholarships, although a lot of parents, you know, hope that with, as I said before, the rise in, in, in uh, college tuition. So that's sometimes a part of it.
0: So besides the intense pressure, maybe nagging, we'll call it, that parents do on <laughs> a lazy son, what are some other responses you see parents take when they see an unmotivated teenage boy?
1: Well, I you know, I'll go back to this these these concepts that I talked about cuz they're really central to what I write about in the book The Paradoxical Response. So prodding, poking, pleading, nagging over parenting, looking at the whatever online grade website the school system uses, which is boy is that going down a rabbit hole because if, you know, if if a parent is looking at that every day or even every week, The teachers don't always post, you know, the kids say the teacher hasn't posted the grades. Well, sometimes they haven't because it's, you know, it's another responsibility for the teacher. And you can't measure what's going on on a day to day basis. So, you know, so parents will just get involved in all sorts of ways, going, you know, walking into a kid's room and saying, you know, do you need anything when they're really checking on their homework or making sure they're doing their homework. And kids, don't get me wrong, kids need structure, they need supervision, they need limits. I'm not an advocate of, you know, letting a teenager do whatever they want and fail if they fail, but they do need some space to make mistakes. How else are they going to learn to deal with anxiety? How else are they going to learn to deal with adversity if they don't make mistakes and learn from them? That's really what autonomy is about. It's not just about making, you know, doing whatever you want. It's about making a choice and then seeing what the consequences are. So what I what I lay out in the book is is a program for parents to be able to step back and set some parameters, work with kids on some goals, figure out if they need some support, and then step back and let their kid figure it out, and maybe even not do so well. And it's really hard, you know. Parents sometimes parents have to, I, one parent even told me it was so hard to to keep from going in to get their kid out. Of bed in the morning, they went to the gym <laughs> because they knew they needed to be out of the house. And then that, and their son needed to be able to get, and that's a big one, but to be able to get out of bed on their own or not. And, you know, and it worked. It took, it took, it took a couple of weeks, but, but this young man did eventually, after being laid, after getting detentions, he finally figured
0: out how to do it. I think another response, a common response parents do, besides the pressuring, like they'll just basically. Do everything for their kids, so their kid will. I mean, I think the idea is that they're, if they do everything for their kid, chores and whatever, like the kid will have more time to focus on schoolwork. But that also doesn't work as well.
1: Uh, I, I, it was, I think, I believe it was Madeline Levine who said she's a psychologist who who writes about overparenting and affluent kids. And I believe it was her. I don't want to misattribute it, but I believe she said, "Don't treat your kids like royalty." Who are expected to bring honor to the family. You know, make them do chores. And 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 that's, you know, I tell parents the same thing. M- make them take out the trash. It's really important. And that's the first part of it. And the second part of it is overparenting, as we've talked about. And I and I talk about the four or five different types of overparenting that we get into with kids, different, you know, the warrior, the perfectionist, I talk about that and, and how to deal with that. But I also tell parents to Do this experiment get some paper and you you probably need a whole pad and write down everything you do for your kids even the little ones write down everything you do for them in a week and then look at the list and then figure out what are the things they can do for themselves cross it off the list then look at the things that they can do part of they need some help with but you know, especially younger kids, we call that in in education scaffolding, giving them the support for the part of the thing they can't do yet, and then letting them figure out the rest. You know the the you know the the if you remember in, in primary school the paper that had the the two dark lines and the dotted line in the middle. I don't even know if they still use that anymore, but you know that was an example of well, here's where the the lowercase letter goes. That scaffolding, but it but but around the house, it's you know let me figure out what you know maybe they can't they can't. Do the laundry, although most kids can, but they can you know, they can get their clothes down there or whatever. And then what are the things that you really need to do for them they can't do for themselves? And it's usually pretty eye-opening, and it gives parents a, a chance to step back and let kids have more independence and do, do more for themselves.
0: We're going to take a quick break for your words from our sponsors. Wedding season is coming up, and if you are preparing for the big day, I know wedding planning can be really intimidating, but finding the perfect suit shouldn't be. Check out the masterclass on negotiation with Chris Voss. And now back to the show. So going back to a more appropriate response that's more productive. So you talked about setting boundaries. So what does that look like? So you're setting boundaries, but allowing them autonomy within those boundaries. What would would a good boundary look like that also allows for autonomy in a a teenage boy?
1: Well, I think about... Limit setting as a fence you build around your child, and you build it around your child to protect them. The thing about that fence is it, it 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 can't be static, it can't be you know grounded in cement it has to grow it has to become bigger as a child becomes bigger so that they have more opportunities to explore to you know make mistakes to have fun it It, it should never also for teenagers be so high that they can't climb over it occasionally. They're going to get into trouble, but that's where they learn and that's where they understand their limits. For things that involve safety, limits are absolute. You know, there's no question about letting a new driver who says, oh yeah, I want to go visit my friend at college, you know, four hours away. I just got my license. No, I don't think so. You need a little bit more experience with that. Drugs and alcohol. You know, when you, and that's a, I'm sure that's a whole other podcast, but when you when you catch a kid Doing something you need to you need to uh, set a limit. It could be grounding. it doesn't have to be you know that they can't go out of the house ever again, but nor should it be you know well they're safer if they're doing it in my house because they need to know where the limits are. they need to know someone is watching them it's the it's the kids whose parents condone that i find get into the most trouble and the kids who know that their parents are watching and they get into trouble they don't necessarily stop but they definitely stay within a safe range so that's that those are the safety issues there's a whole set of uh of 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 issues that probably go in a different basket. Sometimes they're important to enforce. Sometimes they're not important to enforce. Sometimes it's really important to set a bedtime. Other times you can be more flexible. Obviously, it's related to what's going on in school. Sometimes there's, there is less homework and there can be more, you know, more flexibility. Other times you want to say you got to do your homework first. Again, this is for younger kids. And then there's a basket of things that you may feel are important to you but you can give the kids some autonomy. Uh clothing, you know, is is a, is a, is a good example of that, but that's just one example. And 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 different people have different, you know, sets of standards for that. But when it comes to schoolwork though, and that's really what what we're talking about, my suggestion is to set a standard with with kids, which is usually to get Bs. You know, if they want to get As, that's up to them. A lot of parents don't like to hear this, but but that's what I believe. They may get a C in a a class that's difficult for them, but basically to get Bs. And then to ask them how they're going to do it, and then to step back, and then to observe how they're doing. Probably not to wait for a whole semester, but also not to do it on a daily basis. So somewhere mid-semester to see how things are going. And if they're not achieving what you think they should or what you've agreed that they should that's reasonable, then it's time to say, you know what? I think you have too much free time. I think maybe we need to uh, cut down on or eliminate social life, computer time, whatever, so that you have more time to do your homework. If, if if a kid has social issues, you don't necessarily want to take that away, but there are plenty of other things too. That is not going to force the kid to do their homework. You can't. You can you know you you can put them in front of a, a computer and a desk. You can't actually make them work, but it'll make
0: it much more much more possible that they might. And so, yeah, within those boundaries and you give them those choices, you have to let them fail because they're going to flounder and you have to be okay with that.
1: You have to let them flounder. Yeah, I think that's really important. What hap- what's happening that we see more and more, and Brett, I see it in my practice, even just more this year than last year and last year than the year before, are kids that go to college and can't cut it and, and have to take a leave. Um, I, I often have a few kids in my practice that are in that situation, but it uh, you know it seems like I've been flooded with it, you know, uh, last spring and even this fall. And part of the problem is that we're not letting kids figure out how to do things on their own and manage their own anxiety. And we can talk about that in a minute, but you know, manage the anxiety that comes from not being sure whether you are able to do something, uh, figure out a math problem, write a paper, master a sports a sports skill. And so by rushing in too quickly and over-parenting, we're preventing kids from learning about themselves in ways that are really important. We want parents to ask me all the time, you know, what, are, how can I give my kid coping skills, you know? Well, the way to do that is to let back and let them cope, give them something to cope with and let them cope, you know, to let them have a little risk in their life. There's actually a... Uh, a school in, in 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 England that decided this this is for younger kids, but they wanted to bring risk back to the playground. <laughs> they had made it too uh, safe, so they they brought in things that had sharp edges and they brought scissors back into the classroom. And the the teacher said, "Uh, you know, for the first time they cut themselves, they learned to be more careful." So I don't know if I advocate all that, but uh, I think it's really important. And and you know, I hear about parents who, and this is the extreme, but parents, one parent who went to a college admissions interview with the kid and had the kid sit in the waiting room. I heard this from a college admissions officer. While well, he went in and, and told the college college admissions officer how great his kid was. It's kind of crazy. There's There's been reports of parents even going to work with their kids or calling their kid's boss as a young adult. So this is really preventing kids from being able to trust that their, their own independence and their own future.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's funny The parents are like, I want my kid to be responsible, but I'm not going to let them be responsible. <laughs> it's like, that doesn't make any mm-hmm. sense.
1: <laughs> and it comes from a place of caring. It comes from a place of love. It comes with the best intentions. It comes from, as we said before, a worry and a fear about the future. You know, parents aren't doing this just because they want to make, you know, make life more difficult for their kids. They want to make it easier. But that's, yeah, the end result is not so good.
0: And in some of the consequences too, like say, like cleaning your room. You talk about this. Like, all right, he needs to clean his room or do his, if, you know, he needs to put his laundry in the laundry basket or do his laundry. Well, if he doesn't do that, then he's got to suffer the consequences of wearing smelly clothes. And you have to be okay with that because that's that, that's how he's going to learn. This is, this is
1: really true. And I have actually heard kids tell me that they, they, they had other kids tell them your clothes smell, and that's when they decided to do something about it. But laundry is a great example because, you know, you say laundry day is on Wednesday or whenever it is, and your clothes have to be in the hamper on Wednesday. And if they're not in the hamper on Wednesday, you have to do the laundry. And I'm going to show you how. I'm going to teach you now how to do the laundry you know make it simple cold water only you know and separate the colored from the white clothes and you're all set good to go and then if they don't then if they don't do their own laundry then they have to wear those clothes yeah so that's 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 a perfect example the room thing is a little more difficult um i think every parent has their own feelings about this i do believe that to some extent a kid should be able to have that as as their own domain. It's probably not worth a power struggle every day. There does need to be uh, hygiene, so food in the room is not a good idea. Every it could be every once a week. The room needs to be you know picked up and cleaned so that it can be vacuumed and dusted. But that does, that's once a week or whatever. It doesn't have to be every day. That's that's how I feel about that. Different parents feel differently though.
0: Yeah, there's an example of my own life. After reading your book, I was like, I want to put this stuff into practice. I have a son, he's eight, right? So he's not a teenager yet, but I'm, I want to inculcate these this uh, sense of responsibility in him. And last week, uh, he, he gets like homework every night. It's like a worksheet takes like five minutes and it goes in a folder and we we're on the driving him to school and he realized he forgot his folder and he's like, dad you got to go get my folder and bring it to me. I'm like, sorry, man. Like it's not my job. And he was just like, Oh no, it's going to, it's like the end of the world. But yeah, the consequence was he had, he had to miss like 10 minutes of recess so he couldn't do his worksheet. But ever since then, yeah, I didn't go get his, I didn't go get his folder ever since then. The guy, the kid's been on top of it. Like at night, he has everything packed and ready to go. Haven't had to worry about it since then. So
1: it it works. That's a great example. Um, and you know, you already did some scaffolding by giving him that notebook to put his homework in, right? You gave him that. You organized that for him. But but but, Brett, was that easy for you, or was it a little bit hard to to you know to do that? No, now that he was gonna, it was feel pretty. Bad? It was
0: pretty that. easy. I don't know. I didn't have a problem. It was it. easy yeah, for you. <laughs> yeah, I was just like, it's just, it's it's just ten minutes of recess. You're gonna be okay
1: good well that's good and that's a good attitude but a lot of parents really have trouble seeing their kids suffer and be uncomfortable and you know that's part of the root of this
0: yeah i read an article it, it's not there's it, we're seeing not just helicopter parenting it's, it's lawnmower parenting and it's because the parents mow over all the obstacles that come up for their kids yeah i've seen that too <laughs>
1: yeah in in, in 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 Sweden they call it curling parenting because if you've ever watched curling on the Olympics, parents sweep all the obstacles
0: out of the way. So I, I think that's my favorite. No, that's a good one. I like that. I, and so let's how long let's say you start working with an unmotivated boy, you start providing him more autonomy and making choices and floundering. like how long does it typically take? I'm sure it's different for every boy, but how long do you start seeing a change? where you start seeing them taking on more responsibility and making and getting more motivated about, say, schoolwork?
1: You know, I have yet to be asked that question, and, and, it, and I'm really glad that you did because you asked me because it takes a while. You know, sometimes it can take three years of high school for some kids. Remember, those are the late bloomers. That young man may not go to the college that, if he's college-bound and college is an option, he may not go to the college that his parents dreamed of sending him to. He may not go to the college that he wanted to go to. He may not even go to the college that his friends are going to. But the thing is, first of all, he will probably go to a college that will be the best fit for him. He probably will be a kind of kid who needs to be a big fish in a little pond, and that's where he will, that's where he will blossom and grow. And the other thing is that, you know, with the competition in colleges, these Institutions, they all offer such amazing things. I mean, it's unbelievable. You know, it doesn't have to be have the stamp of Harvard to be a phenomenal institution. So, so sometimes it takes that long. Uh, it depends on the kid. It usually takes a while. What I see in my practice, you know, and, and as a therapist, I can, I, I have different ways of talking about these things with kids that parents don't necessarily have because of their parents. And my approach is always to. Try to f- help the, the the teenager figure out what's in it for them. You know, to separate it out from their parents' need. This is a little bit different, but it's an example. I, I saw a teenager who started in therapy not too long ago, and his parents forced him to come to the first session, and he was really unhappy about it. But he came, and so about midway through, I said, "Well," or actually at the end, I said, "You know, you seem to have talked a lot today. Why don't you come back next week and?" Come back for you, not for your parents, and then see how therapy is. And uh, you know, he really likes being in therapy now. But that's an example uh, from a little bit of a different arena that comes to mind about looking into the the teenager and seeing how they can they can get more uh, engaged. It's frustrating for me sometimes because you know I feel like I'm I'm, I'm being paid to do this. I need to produce re- results, and sometimes it's ta- it takes longer than I wanted to. But what I do notice is along the way, the young man in therapy or the young woman too is is getting more confident. They're fighting less with their parents. They are there are signs that they're finding school a little more interesting and they're happier. So I, I can kind of monitor things along the way that lead to, you know, improvement in school. I once gave a young man a challenge. I said, I I want you to turn in your homework Every day for this marking period, I don't care if it's incomplete, maybe sometimes it'll just have your name on it, maybe sometimes it'll be perfect. I want you to commit to turning in your assignments every day, which he did. He turned in his assignments every single day, and that was what changed, turned things around for him he's now uh, he's actually now a teacher He got, a, he got a, a graduate degree in teaching.
0: Wow so as we've been having this conversation, you know we, our conversation has been about what we can do for Kids, and your primary focus is counseling children. But I imagine you have to do some counseling with parents at the same time, unwittingly. Like they don't know that the parents are getting counseled, but you have to do that in order to help the kid.
1: Yeah, I do, and and I work with adults too in my practice. Um, and and so sometimes I'm coaching parents. Sometimes parents come to see me about you know how, and it, that's really touching when a parent is willing to get into therapy themselves to figure out how to help. And improve their relationship with their kid but yeah there is a lot of parent coaching that goes on it is often what i want to do is have a family session and have the parents come in with the with the teenager 99 of the time the teenager does not want to do that and refuses but would be fine with me talking to the parent um, and you know it takes time for the parents too it takes time for them to trust me to trust the process and mostly to trust their kids. And you know, what I say to parents is parenting isn't a skill, it's a relationship. It's not a skill, it's a relationship. And if you trust the relationship, things are going to work out in the end. And I think that that's very reassuring for parents. Some They usually often get the message to back off, but it's sometimes harder to put into place. And then there's also work that I do with kids in terms of being better advocates for themselves, being respectful, but stating their needs with their parents when parents are too demanding. And that's also really important for kids because it gives them a voice. I, I often prepare the parents first and I don't, you know, I'm not trying to incite riots here and I have to be respectful of every every family's values. But nonetheless, it's really important to be able to have kids and parents talk to each other and have that dialogue.
0: Right. Because I imagine, I mean, a lot of the problem, I mean, issues with the parents, putting pressure on their kids is the parents feel like their identity and their worth is tied up in how their kids do, do in school. And if they're failing in school, it means they failed as a parent. And not necessarily, right?
1: You know, that's very insightful. If you ever get tired of being a podcast host, you can become a therapist because that's very right. insightful. And I think it's true. Um, I think that we put everything into our kids. You know, it's it's the most powerful relationship there is. You know, it's different than a relationship with your spouse. It's different than a relationship with your, with your parents. You you know, parents hope that their kids are going to have a different life than they had, and uh, make different, you know, and not make the same mistakes than they made. And you know, I often tell parents you can't shortcut that. They need to learn. They need to make you know, they need to have some pain, as I said before. So so it's really hard. And and some parents over identify with their kids. I have an exercise in my book about that, because sometimes parents feel like it's their problem. You know, they see their kid go through something and they think, "Well, I went through that. it must be the same." You know, Jim must Jimmy must be having the same reaction I had when I was cut from the team or whatever, and it's not always the case. So there's also space that needs to be given.
0: Yeah, I heard this great piece of parental advice that I've sort of used as a, as a guiding principle with my parenting. It's like your job as a parent, your primary job as a parent is to keep your kids safe physically, right? Mm-hmm. It's not your job to make them happy. And I was like, you know what? That's good advice. I can't, you can't make someone happy. You can provide, you know, a foundation for that, but it's up, you know, they've got to make those choices for themselves.
1: I really like that. I really like that. And it makes me think of something a parent said to me years ago, which is, I don't want my kid to be happy. I want them to be able to work hard. Because if they work hard, they'll be happy. (laughs) No, I love that.
0: I mean, and also another issue that parents might have, let's say there's a a parent listening to the show and they've got a son who is unmotivated in school and you're trying to talk to him about it, but he just clams up. I mean, any insights that parents can use to, you know, get a disengaged boy to to talk to them?
1: Oh yeah, and and there's a lot to be said about that. I'll tell you the most important thing a parent can do to get a child to talk: keep their mouth shut. Because what happens is that we want to give advice, we want to give solutions, we want to tell them what we went through, and you know, it's true for parents, it's true for therapists. The less you say, the more the person on the other side of the room is going to say when they know that you're listening. So if, if, if that's the only thing you know, a, a parent can take from this, that's, that's really powerful. The second thing is to use empathy and to validate how a child feels. And this isn't true for kids. Just for kids, it's true for adults. It's true for everybody. We want to have our feelings validated. Now, that does not mean that you have to agree with the feeling, right? They're just feelings. It doesn't mean you have to agree with the perspective. All it means is that you understand where the person's coming from. And you can say, I understand where you're coming from, or I get that. But, you know, it's really important to do the work to really get it, to really understand. You know, a kid comes home and says, my teacher hates me. You know, well, probably not, right? Kids often say that it's rare for a teacher really to hate a kid and but the first thing that you want to do is say oh you know you're perfect how could anybody hate you or i'm sure they don't hate you well don't do that so quickly you know try to get their perspective but how do you get their perspective by asking questions so rather than first listen but also ask questions and try to ask questions that get at what their feeling. Now, this is process is going to take some time because the, the teenager is going to have to trust that you really are interested in listening and understanding. Not trust that you love them, not trust that you're taking care of them, but trust that their opinion counts because that's really so important for, for teenagers to feel as as, as we we're talking about before with identity and autonomy and transitioning to adulthood. You know, and they sometimes have some wacky ideas and they think they figured everything out. I love this quote. It's Mark Twain who said, "You know, my father. i mean, my father didn't when I was 16. My father didn't know anything. You know, he didn't understand how the world worked. I, I'm amazed at how smart he got by the time I turned 23. <laughs> so that's kind of how they look at things. But but I think that listening, asking questions, validating feelings, getting them to talk more is is really important. Um, and if they're really clamming up. You can you can say well you know we'll talk about this later but we but we really need to talk about it so I want you to think about this and I will really I will set some ground rules and the ground rules are I'm not going to judge you I'm not going to give you advice I just want to hear it from you and sometimes a parent just has to listen and say great I'm glad we had this conversation (laughs) you know there's a joke I just got off the phone with my mother she had a very good conversation. You want to you want to try to do, flip that and have that with your kid too. Sometimes you just have to listen and let it be that and then eventually you'll be able to talk more.
0: Well, Dr. Price, is there some place people can go to learn more about the book and your work?
1: Yeah, absolutely. They can go to the com. They can or go to my website. I have a, I have a blog on psychology today called The Unmotivated Teen. The book just came, it's obviously available you know, at quality bookstores and on Amazon and Barnes and Noble, and it just came out in the audio version last Friday. So I'm really excited about that.
0: Well, fantastic. Dr. Adam Price, thanks for coming on. This has been a great conversation. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you for having me. My guest today was Dr. Adam Price. He's the author of the book, He's Not Lazy. It's available on amazon.com. You can find out more information about his work and his book at he'snotlazy.com. Also, check out our show notes at aom.is slash notlazy, where you can find links to resources where you can delve deeper into this topic. Well, that wraps up another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. For more manly tips and advice, make sure to check out the Art of Manliness website at artofmanliness.com. And if you enjoy the show, you got something out of it, I'd appreciate it if you give us a review on iTunes or Stitcher. Helps out a lot. And if you've done that already, thank you. Please consider sharing the show with a friend or family member who you think would get something out of it. As always, thank you for your continued support. Until next time, this is Brett McKay telling you to stay manly.